Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we'll be talking about setting up a foreign news bureau, why it matters, how to do it, and who to hire. Lakshmi Parthasarathy joins me this week. She's the Chief Operating Officer at Global Press, a non-profit organisation with 37 offices in 12 countries. It has recently set up bureaus in countries like Haiti and Nepal, countries which, from time to time, hit the international news agenda when disaster strikes. Classically, foreign correspondents are sent to those countries to cover the unfolding events, and then our attention quickly turns to the next crisis. The problem is, this often does the reader or viewer a disservice. What Global Press is starting to see are international news audiences demanding deeper and better coverage from on the ground. That's where it pays to have local reporters to provide the right perspective and language. We're going to find out how it all works, so don't go anywhere. Lakshmi, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob. I appreciate it. Little known fact about you is that you spent 10 years as an Indian classical dancer starting at the age of 14. Tell us more. That's right. The classical dance form is called Odissi and it's from the state of Orissa in India. It's beautiful, it's fluid, um, it is rigorous <laughs> and was, uh, was a great passion of mine for, for many years. How did you get into it? I actually went to go see a performance uh, in Toronto where uh, I was growing up and I was mesmerized by the fluidity of the of the movement and the the classical music that went along with it including the the pukwaj which is a really um, powerful drum that's played in Odissi dance and uh, I was sold <laughs> What's the hardest part of it? The discipline that that comes with ODC. I think um, at a young age, I learned about discipline and rigor through that dance form, you know, practicing multiple times a day on my own before classes and, you know, many, many performances. So it was uh, a great lesson in, in discipline very early on. It can be right. Like whether it's a musical instrument, dancing, whatever your passions are, having that discipline teaches you a, a valuable life lesson. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think just, um, and, you know, sticking with something for, for a long period of time and, and seeing that growth and improvement. Um, yeah, it was a meaningful part of my life. And did you do any performances or anything like that? Public performances? <laughs> I did. Yeah, many. I actually um, did multiple public performances. We would have, you know, matinee and evening shows and it kind of took over my life for a, a moment in, in time. And, uh, it, you know, there, there were there were multiple performances along the way, international and national. These days, you are the chief operating officer at the Global Press. Um, for maybe our uninitiated audience, would you tell us a bit more about what the Global Press is all about, please? Absolutely. So Global Press is an international news organization. We build independent news bureaus staffed by uh, local women reporters in undercovered media markets from Arkhangai province, Mongolia to Chiapas, Mexico. Um, and we publish our stories on globalpressjournal.com. We do feature and investigative reporting. And we're actually one of the only news organizations in the world that provide full-time employment to local reporters. Right. And and who are your audience then? Yeah, I love this question. Our audience is really unique, I think, for a news organization. Um, 
At our news organization, we first and foremost prioritize our local audience, our coverage communities um, in the local language um, that our reporters speak and that our, their audiences um, consume news in. Um, but we also understand that it's really important to disrupt rote narratives about people in places around the world. And that means really prioritizing as well the US and European audience of international news readers. Give me an example of a rote narrative, if you would. Ah, well, one of my favorites is um, when we were looking at launching a news bureau in Mongolia, I kept seeing the same kind of three stories come up. Coverage about reindeers, about eagle herding, about um, climate change in um, Mongolia. But there's so much more. You know, one of our reporters has recently um, covered an incredible story about uh, forced virginity testing across high schools in Mongolia, a practice that the UN had said was banned and that the Mongolian government said that was banned, but based on her six month long investigation was still going on for uh, across many high schools in, in Mongolia, you know, stories about disability rights, stories about border challenges between China and Mongolia, you know, there's just, you know, the the stories coming from Mongolia really require coverage from outside of Ulaanbaatar, mm -hmm. which is the capital. Um, and so when we go in to launch a news bureau and hire reporters, we're looking at multiple locations. We're looking at diversity of age, of uh, region, of experience. Um, you know, we're looking at representing that country as holistically as we can. And in the example of a forced virginity testing, how much more in demand is that type of a story compared to the, the rope narratives you described, the climate change, the reindeer herding? Sometimes there are these, you know, for example, Haiti. We just launched a news bureau. We actually have been operating Haiti for many years, but we expanded our news bureau in, in Haiti beyond Port-au-Prince to Port-de-Paix and Maniche and other locations. And, you know, Haiti is another place where, you know, in order to disrupt a narrative about hurricanes, earthquakes, and political unrest, it requires a local reporter to be there for a long period of time and tell stories after the breaking news event has happened. And I think part of the responsibility of news organizations is to not just be there when the hurricane hits, but to really measure the government's response over a long period of time. And I, I think it's less of a question about whether audiences want that kind of news and more of a question about what our responsibility is as, as news organizations. That's a really interesting point because when a big moment happens in a, in a, you know, a distant country in the world, it can be our temptation in that moment to put all our eyes and attention on it. And then as soon as it kind of fades into irrelevance, we move on to the next thing. Is your point there kind of, we have a responsibility as news organizations to continue and to follow through, you know, long beyond the story is immediately relevant in our minds? Absolutely. And I think there are consequences to not doing that. Obviously, I think breaking news is also important and critical to our news diet, um, and as are these feature and investigative pieces that just take a longer time to tell and um, that we have to follow. And the only way that we can follow these stories, for example, you know, I mentioned uh, Korlu Kukunhoi's story from Mongolia about forced virginity testing. I mentioned it took her six months to tell that story. If you're, you know, a freelance reporter 
trying to get that story out, trying to um, get that story published and filed in a short period of time, you're not going to tell the same kind of comprehensive story where she's able to follow up on a story she did, you know, six months prior and see what's taking place. And so, you know, part of that feeds into, I think, the employment model as well. Global Press found in recent years that a large US audience was coming to the website despite doing virtually no coverage of the country. The team could only deduce Americans were looking for an alternative international news source. And so it commissioned a 10-month research project and published the finding this year showing exactly what a sample size of 1,200 US news audiences want from international news coverage. Roughly three quarters of the respondents said they preferred international news based on local reporters covering events from their communities. These audiences were tired of disaster-driven coverage and felt like they weren't getting the full story from their mainstream media. Who tells the story clearly matters to these audiences more than ever before, and they, you know, audiences really value proximity. And then finally, it was just that audiences appreciate equitable vocabulary um, in, in kind of comprehensive coverage. And so, you know, that means for example, testing headlines. Some headlines use, you know, were a little bit more clickbaity. Others were just use more words to describe what the story was about. And overwhelmingly, that's what audiences chose. Mm. Um, whereas in journalism, we're taught, you know, say it in fewer words. <laughs> um, but at Global Press, we say don't force readers to make assumptions. Yeah. What I take from that is there's a there's a point here broadly about news literacy that when you provide someone with an alternative. Um, you know, roughly, you know, half the people in this survey sort of said or had some form of sympathy for the local level reporting and um, versus sort of the more traditional parachute style journalism. So when you can provide an alternative and explain why that matters, um, people will prefer it. Absolutely. I think there is just really a lack of understanding in the news gathering process. And the onus is really on news organizations and journalists to earn that trust of their audience. Um, you know, simple things like not understanding that a parachute journalist would work with, um, you know, what would be traditionally called a fixer. But that fixer is really just a local reporter that doesn't get the byline. Um, what is a dateline? What does it mean when a story is reported in Goma, but filed in London? Mm-hmm. How does that change the newsmaking process? You know, whose view is ultimately um, covering that topic? Yeah. I think the you know one caveat maybe is that in the in the research I think one person sort of said a parachute journalist at least doesn't really have skin in the game they're not they're not necessarily attached to the story is that a fair concern maybe with um, local reporting that maybe they're not going to be as uh, objective as they could be you know so I think there's two questions here really one is about objectivity and I think you know in 2023 if we are trying to pretend that journalists are robots and have absolutely no worldview or experience or, you know, proximity to a story. Um, You know, I think that is just not realistic. Um, I do think it, what we see is unprecedented source access, trust in the communities that we're covering. Um, That means better source access, better source interviews and better stories. And then, you know, I think the other question here is both journalists and newsrooms need to ask themselves, who is the story for? Mm. Is, is, is the story only for an international audience? Therefore, it doesn't matter if it's translated into local language. It doesn't matter if that local audience ever sees this story or understands how they were represented. 
Um, you know, these are all questions that newsrooms individually have to grapple with and determine what, you know, who they're serving and that will lead to how they can best serve them. Mm. What I, what I sort of take from that answer is that it's hard to be objective when you're so close to the story, but you know, the, the cultural and contextual significance of a local journalist is, is crucial to getting the story right. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we have a code of ethics. We ensure that, you know, all reporters understand that a a well-reported story is a well-sourced story. So that proximity, I think, beyond kind of getting great source access in communities, it also means often a prioritization of, you know, experts from within the country, not just your World Bank and IMF representative or the Mm. same person in the same Rolodex that, you know, the next reporter is reaching out to. Um, So again, you're going to get a more unique and holistic version of a story. Yeah. And and it's clear how this thinking is really underpinning the model at uh, Global Press then. You're up to 37 offices in 12 countries. Is that right? That's right. And, um, you know, the, as I mentioned, these, co- these countries cover Latin America, Asia, and Africa, um, you know, from Mongolia to, to Mexico. Um, and we operate all of our um, news bureaus publish in the local language that our reporters speak. So it's actually not required to speak English to work for global press. So you have translators then? As well. Correct. So we have an incredible network called Global Press Accuracy Network. And this is made up of interpreters, translators, fact checkers, and copy editors that ensure that this story is global press accurate. Our digital journalism conference, News Rewind, is nearly upon us and we'd love to see you there. Join us for a day of panel discussions and networking on the 23rd of May 2023 at News UK in London. Head to newsrewind.com to grab your ticket and we'll see you there. Obviously, the world's a really big place, uh, Lakshmi. <laughs> How do you pick a, a, you know, a bureau to you know, operate in? One of the unique things that we do at Global Press is we don't look at a country as one media market. There are multiple media markets within a country, you know, just like in the UK, right? So a country um, is not a community, is you know, essentially. Exactly. Important. Exactly. So we look at four different kinds of media markets. We look at news deserts, we look at saturated media markets, we look at transitioning political environments, and then unfree societies. And our model essentially works in all four of those. And sometimes we see all four of those within one country. Um, And so when we're looking to launch a news bureau, we ask ourselves about one, an opportunity for global narrative change, this kind of conversation that we had prior about um, rote narratives that need disrupting. Um, Two, we look at the opportunity to serve local audiences where access to information and higher quality news um, may be of service. Uh, But then we also look at what it means to be a reporter in that country. You know, is it, are there a lot of barriers to becoming a reporter in that country? Um, Who is a reporter in that country? Do you have to go to X or Y university and get accredited in order to even have a job in a certain newsroom? Who does that leave out of the storytelling process? And where are the opportunities to elevate um, employment practices in reporting? So obviously the new development is the new bureaus in uh, Nepal and Haiti, right? That's right. 
apply that for a second. Why were those countries important to you? Yeah, so we have been operating in both Nepal and in Haiti for, I think, over six or seven years now. But I think it was really apparent to us, uh, especially recently, around all of the coverage around political unrest and protests and, again, disaster-driven coverage, especially in Haiti, um, that we needed coverage from outside of Port-au-Prince in, in Haiti. And there's actually a kind of the growing economic center in the north of Haiti now. There is, you know, parts of the of the country that have been most heavily impacted by some of these, you know, natural disasters, but that have never seen any reporters um, covering those places um, or kind of what's happened to them since those natural disasters. And so we had a real opportunity there to, to provide holistic coverage from Haiti in a really meaningful way. And so we specifically targeted our recruitment to be outside of Port-au-Prince in both the north and west of of the country. So we really saw an opportunity there, um, given kind of what was what was happening in, in mainstream coverage. What I take so far is that audiences can prefer an alternative to the traditional foreign correspondent, but it's also important for those communities to have local reporters who can share their perspective with a broader audience. To highlight those criteria again, Global Press looks to set up offices in news deserts, saturated media markets, transitioning political environments, and unfree societies. It's one thing to pick a market though, it's another thing to fill your bureau with the right talent. We're going to find out how Global Press managed to get 1,000 applications for just seven reporter roles in Mongolia. Here's a hint, remove barriers to applying. Uh, the last time we did a recruitment in Puerto Rico, we literally drove around the island dropping off um, postcards in salons and bars and community centers and all over the place just to make sure that it's not just going to a Facebook community or a set of people that are in journalism associations only and making sure that we're really kind of going far and wide. It meant radio advertisements in Spanish. It meant um, you know, accessing all of the local uh, university radio stations to air this ad and making sure that we were getting a really diverse reach in terms of this information. In other places, it means not assuming that people have consistent access to the internet and can apply for these jobs. And so we might set up partnerships with community centers um, or other institutions where people can come in and kind of use a computer lab to apply for for the job. Mm. So it really requires us to think creatively about how people access information and how to get this job opportunity out to people. And what we've seen is in Mongolia, for example, we had a thousand applications for seven reporters that we could hire in Mongolia. In Puerto Rico, the last recruitment, it was 700 applications for only five reporters that we were hiring. So, you know, we're, we're always floored with the demand for the kind of jobs that we are providing. Um, and, you know, in that, in that cohort of applications, there's always just some really phenomenal individuals. I think that speaks to the point that, you know, do this really sophisticated at your peril kind of thing, you know, really <laughs> go in and hit the reset button on your expectations and make it, you know, um, realistic for them to apply, I suppose. And um, are there any qualifications, requirements to, to join your team? 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the most important things is, um, are you curious? Do you ask good questions? You know, what experiences do you kind of bring to the table beyond kind of, you know, obviously we have uh, reporters that have had previous journalism experience, but we've also hired reporters that are um, epidemiologists that have always wanted to be reporters, but have never had the opportunity to apply for a journalism job. Um, you know, English isn't a requirement, which is, I think, a really um, big barrier that a lot of local reporters face when trying to apply for these kinds of jobs. And I think that um, that is something that we hear over and over again is so appreciated. Um, but, you know, I think it it's it's really about kind of what experiences you bring to the table what communities you have access to um and and whether you are committed to changing the narratives um that the the rote narratives about your community what goes into the training element okay so the training is all done by global press institute um it used to be all done in person and we spent the last two years actually developing global press institute online which takes our reporters through a pretty intensive journalism curriculum. Everything from, you know, the basics of fact checking to photojournalism to um, sourcing, you know, all of the really important ingredients to become a global press specific reporter, right? Because we're not doing breaking news. We're doing stories of consequence that are feature and investigative and that requires a different kind of training and i presume that's because of the pandemic that you went virtual online exactly so you know this i think um the in-person training was wonderful but also when the pandemic hit it was really an important moment for us to reflect on the sustainability of, of an in-person training model and whether um it was possible to do something like this fully virtually and we've proven now with two cohorts and nine reporters in, in Haiti and Nepal that it is, um, you know, they they fully were trained on Global Press Institute online. There's a portion of the training that is really curriculum based, self-guided um, online learning. Uh, and then there is a component of it that is all about editorial coaching, where they work directly with an editorial coach uh, to get their first stories published with globalpressjournal.com. All reporters are paid for their participation in the training program. And then they are, as long as they graduate the training program, they're um, guaranteed employment with Global Press Journal. Nice. And is there a, a safety element of this? Because you were saying before how important women were in your in your strategy. The, the mm -hmm. statistics on this are very clear. Women face, you know, much more abuse and harassment than men um, online and offline. They're, they're actually quite linked. So how, how important is safety in this in the training? Yeah, I think um, IWMF recently said it was 70% of women journalists report online harassment. And it's a major driver. What we see is a major driver of women leaving the profession. Mm -hmm. And so part of this, you know, training and duty of care, which begins on your first day at Global Press. Right. Um, so that's baked into the, the curriculum very early on. Super. And how does all of this translate to making a sustainable business model for Global Press? The industry is going through a really rough time. <laughs> there is no skirting around that. No kidding. Um, we're asked to do so many things, right? We we have to create great journalism. Uh, 
we have to do some level of media literacy to ensure that our audiences also trust the news and engage with the news. We have to also ensure that we are engaging audiences in a really meaningful way. Otherwise, what's the point of the journalism that we're doing? But amongst all of that is also really thinking creatively about sustainability. And at Global Press, you know, we are a nonprofit news organization. So we are primarily philanthropically supported by institutional donors. But it's also important that all news organizations are constantly thinking about diversified revenue streams. And so at Global Press, we operate Global Press News Services, which is the B2B division of Global Press, where we offer really kind of the best tools and services that Global Press has developed to do this kind of journalism over the last 17 years to other organizations, not just news organizations, but, you know, organizations more broadly speaking, looking at language equity and the use of our style guide that focuses on dignity and precision. Um, we run a series of style guide workshops um, to help other organizations kind of grapple with language choice and language equity. We um, help organizations also design and build their own duty of care programs. We've helped other news organizations do this as well. And then we also um, offer photo curation services with Global Press News Services as well because of our very large archive of incredible photojournalism. One last quick fire question to round things off with you, uh, Lakshmi. One country you would love to have a bureau in that you don't already and why? Ooh, there are so many, Jacob. It is so hard to answer that question. Um, I've long had this dream of doing an island-specific project where global press is in places like the Maldives and Fiji and places that aren't going to actually have coverage for very long because they'll probably be underwater. Um, I think there's a real opportunity there to tell some incredible um, climate-related stories and um, climate adaptation stories. And, um, you know, I'd give us give us a, a little bit of time and uh, I think you'll see us Yes, following that path. Let me know when you set up shop in Fiji and we'll uh, we'll chat again, okay? <laughs> Lakshmi, we'll thanks ever so much for coming onto the show. It's been a real blast. Uh, thanks for all of your time and insights. Lots of good takeaways in this one, but if I take anything, it's that international news must be informed by international reporters. Foreign correspondents, of course, play an important role in breaking news, but audiences want the full story. And the best way to get that is to be working with local reporters on the ground. I'd love to get your thoughts. Find me on Twitter at JPG Journalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that is all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>